Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we're at the fifth class, I believe, of our um, structured study on the noble practice. Um, this 14-class structured study is a, a, a penetrating look at the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Um, and I don't, we've never presented these, the four, the four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path in this manner, meaning a sutta that relates to each uh, factor of those. And so, uh, what's today? Tuesday. So Saturday's class um, was a look at jhana meditation and the deepening levels of jhana as that relates to impermanence within jhana practice, meaning we recognize the change in ourselves and in our deepening concentration. And that relates directly to the third noble truth and that cessation of ignorance of four noble truths, cessation of our own contributions to stress is possible and it's possible directly through and, and, and rooted in concentration. And so this sutta, the Sika Sutta, follows that with the explanation and the direction of what we should do with jhana um, as it relates to the other factors of the Eightfold Path. And in this sutta, the Buddha classifies the Eightfold Path, and, and in other suttas he does this as well, as a path of virtue, concentration, and developing wisdom a three-factor path in that way that, that covers the different aspects of the Eightfold Path. So, the Buddha addressed those gathered. Friends, there are three trainings that I teach. I teach training in heightened virtue. I teach training in heightened concentration. And I teach height, training in heightened wisdom. So immediately the Buddha is teaching us the simplicity of what he's teaching. There's only three um, areas or themes that we need to be that we need to be considering rather than grasping after all types of different con concepts and in different contexts and within different practices, we're just looking at virtue, concentration, and wisdom. And everybody knows, every human being knows what virtue is, even though some of us struggle with maintaining that virtue in all areas of our lives. And that's where ignorance of four noble truths comes in and where a lack of concentration. And, most human beings, when they act less than virtuous, will start blaming themselves and this further self-loathing. Without the true path to accepting responsibility, in other words, we can't really accept responsibility for our behavior unless we understand the root of our behavior, especially our behavior that we find hurting others. So I, you've heard me say this often. Excuse me. And I promised myself I wouldn't get into this yet tonight, but here it is. Um, most of us feel a lack of control when we hurt other people inadvertently through reaction, um, through poor behavior, um, through everything that is contrary to right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And I say that inadvertently because I think back to the first time I, I yelled back at my mommy and daddy in anger. Um, it hurt me, and obviously it hurt them, but I didn't understand why I was acting that way, and I felt out of control, even though at the time it was 
the only behavior I was capable of. And as we grow through our lives and we, uh, we behave in less than virtuous ways now as adults, and we can't quite understand why am I being aggressive in this way? Why am I being angry? Why am I being greedy? Why am I falling into greed, aversion, and deluded thinking? And we always blame ourselves, but we're, what we're really blaming is an image of ourselves. And it's that image of ourselves that is fabricated. And it's that image of ourselves that concentration brings us the understanding now framed by the Eightfold Path. So we can come to an understanding of our own less than ideal behavior by recognizing that it's a fabrication. And that really is the only way that we can resolve these issues of self-doubt and self-loathing by recognizing they are just a fabrication. They are not me. We dissociate from those views that are connected with this um, less than ideal behavior in the framework of the Eightfold Path. Okay, this, this will become a little bit more clear as I continue. Then the Buddha explains, the training and heightened virtue brings restraint in speech, actions, and livelihood. So that training is being mindful of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And we've learned in many classes exactly what that is. The Buddha doesn't even give something as simple as right speech, right action, right livelihood, up to our own um, image or conjecture. But, and it's a very simple explanation. And basically, all of it boils down to remaining harmless to ourselves first and then to others. And if we can do that and do that moment by moment, not outwardly, not so people notice, but in our own minds, we're no longer being aggressive with our own thoughts. Now calm will prevail. But it begins first here with treating ourselves with dignity and respect by recognizing who and what I am as a human being a six-property person and nothing more, now informed by the wisdom of an awakened human being framed by the Eightfold Path. When we're able to do that, incorporate the virtuous factors of the Eightfold Path, the Buddha then teaches, this Dhamma practitioner remains pure in their behavior at all times. There's so much power in that one line, excuse me. And you heard me say often, that once the Eightfold Path is integrated, we recognize the true power of being a human being because now we know we're good to go. Meaning that, that, that fear that we develop through harming others inadvertently and also by being harmed by others inadvertently and taking it personal now falls away because we understand that none of it is personal. We understand where our aggressive behavior rooted in greed, aversion, and deluded thinking arises from from that deluded thinking, and we don't do anything about it. We don't analyze it. We don't blame others. We don't blame ourselves. We don't need to spend years in therapy, although therapy can help many people. When I say that, I don't mean don't utilize therapy, but what I'm saying is we must all get to the point where we stop blaming ourselves and others for anything, for anything. That's where liberation comes from. And as we integrate the Eightfold Path and understand that now I am good to go, I will no longer make decisions that will harm me or harm others simply because of the integrating the safefold path. That's power. That's liberation. That's freedom. And it occurs in our thoughts, doesn't it? And then our thoughts transfer to our actions that are always calm and peaceful. They're never aggressive. They're free of self-loathing and they're free of greed and aversion. This is what we talk about when we're talking about wise restraint. 
the Buddha says they train themselves following these rules of behavior and understand the danger of even the slightest deviation. The danger to whom? The danger first to me. Why? Because I'm losing my mind. Of course, there's a concomitant danger possible to the world at large based on how her behavior manifests. But it's first to ourselves. And it's rooted in last week's class and what we're talking about here. It's rooted in the loss of concentration. Because how does a loss of concentration manifest in the world? I forget who I am. And I think I'm something other than what I am. And only what I am. A six-property person having an experience in this moment. But if I've attached something rooted in self-loathing, rooted in a misunderstanding of myself, I can't help but react and protect that image. Is everybody following me? And so what I'm describing is living in this fabrication that the Buddha teaches us in dependent, dependent origination. From ignorance of four noble truths comes fabrications. We start fabricating who we are in relation to the world. But because we're doing it, we're also fabricating what's occurring in the world, meaning we're taking what's occurring in the world personal. When we know that there's nothing personal in the world, it's what's occurring. How can anything be personal in the world? And these rules show us where, where these fabrications pop up. Dhamma teacher Ram, say it again, please. So these rules that, that what and he calls it, he calls the, the virtuous factors rules. Yep. The rules are there to show us where in our behavior these fabrications keep popping up. Yeah, where they manifest. Why? So once we recognize and we take ourselves behind the woodshed and beat the hell out of ourselves. <laughs> So we recognize it and we gently let it go. There's no analysis, there's no blame. There's just a recognition that this is a fabrication. And the quickest resolution is recognizing what the Buddha told me here a few classes ago, many classes. This is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. That's not not taking responsibility because within the Dhamma, we know we can't escape any responsibility for our behavior, but we learn to see it correctly within a view of understanding of fabrication. And so we can stop beating ourselves up over it. At the same time, we stop blaming others for the way they make us feel. Imagine that. Imagine being able to live in the world without being hurt by others' behavior because we understand it. Even the most egregious behavior, we understand where it comes from. And we understand the distraction of needing to place blame or even to place some kind of analytical meaning within a societal view type of blame, because then we fall into tribalism, which is just another form of eye making, isn't it? Now supported by more people thinking the same way, but thinking in a diluted way. I just, I'm just thinking about that word rules in, in, in what he just said. In, in the Buddhist Dharma, the rules are there to foster understanding. Period. In society, rules are there to stop behavior and, and change behavior. And to point where people are wrong. Yeah. And um, it's, it's so interesting. And a lot of people will, will chafe at, uh, at the virtuous factors. Right. I, I used to do too. Um, until I understood that all they're there for is, is to, to foster understanding. Yeah, just guidance. It's not to 
choke me down, to, to make me do something. It's just so that once you apply these rules, you get to see where the fabrications are. Yep. And, and just through understanding, you can drop the whole lot. Yeah, thank you, Ron. And it's just that. What Ron was referring to is the last sentence here. We recognize the danger in even the slightest deviation. The danger to who? The danger to my calm and peaceful mind. The danger to my well-being. And again, this may sound selfish, but if I if I hope to change my impact on the world, how best to do it but through this gentle path guided by virtue? Because it tells me immediately when my behavior is first becoming helpful, hurtful to me. And I know that that's going to be hurtful to others, whether I mean it or not, whether I, I intend to hurt others or not. And most every human being goes through the life never intending to hurt anyone. But yet they do, don't they? I never wanted to yell and scream at my mommy and daddy or my mother and father, I should say, now, when I'm 67. <laughs> but I did. I, and I, I found a way... Um, that was necessary for me just to stay away from drugs and alcohol. I had to get let go of that part of the past. I found a way to say sincerely, I'm sorry. And I still remember I was 27 years old. I still remember sitting at a kitchen table in a house that's no longer there. Saying I'm sincerely apologized for my behavior. I recognize what I did. And they kind of threw it off like, ah, it's okay. That, that was what, what they did with it, my parents. And I did the same thing with my siblings and other people. Some people let it go at that point, and some people in my family never let it go. And it's interesting that those people in my family are the ones that are most struggling with what we're talking about, with their fabricated views of themselves. There's so much freedom in simply recognizing I'm a six-property person, nothing more, having an experience in this moment. That has nothing to do with me, save that I'm here. And in that way, no matter what is occurring, my mind is at peace and I can contribute in a very healthy way to the fabric of the world I live in, to the fabric of society. At the very least, I won't be contributing something that is hurtful. You've heard me say the most loving thing I can do for myself and all other sentient beings is to take to the Dhamma and awaken because then I know I'm good to go in the world. Then I know I'm good to go. I can do no harm. When we do that, the Buddha says this is called training and heightened virtue, following right speech, right action, and right livelihood. We all know we can do it. Then he says the training and heightened concentration, meaning jhana, develops the concentration necessary to support refined mindfulness. Refined mindfulness is the mindfulness that holds in mind the Eightfold Path. This Dharma practitioner remains secluded from sensory indulgence and unskillful mental qualities, both on our cushion and off. They enter and remain in the first jhana, characterized by uh, contentment or rapture and pleasure, born of seclusion, and accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. Again, we talked about this last week. We're just recognizing as we begin our jhana practice, our meditation practice, that concentration is increasing, and we're moving through these deepening levels of concentration, beginning with recognizing our directed thought. I find that I'm caught up in my thinking. I direct my thought back to my breath. And in that beginning part of meditation, I'm also judging. I'm evaluating this practice. It might even be 
I'm doing it wrong. I can't do it for five minutes or 20 minutes. That bald-headed guy is crazy. I don't want to do it. But we keep coming back to our breath. And we recognize because of this practice and the framework that we're taught, ever-deepening concentration. As the Buddha says, as concentration deepens further, they enter remain in the second jhana, the second level of mental absorption. Focus thoughts and insight still. Meaning I'm no longer directing my thoughts back to my breath. My mind is developing a certain measure of calm. Delight and pleasure born of composure and inner assurance arise. Now I'm just delight, delighted in this, in this practice, in this inner poise that I'm finding. In, this, in the last week, we talked about this in a way of deepening concentration. I first take, take contentment and pleasure in sitting down and recognizing, yes, I've established seclusion from the world. And as concentration increases, or as jhana increases, as my meditation practice increases, I recognize deepening concentration. I'm able to, to string one or two or three or four breaths to, together without getting caught up in a thought or a feeling or a thought attached to a feeling and emotion. It's important to recognize that because we are recognizing our own deepening concentration. The Buddha says as concentration deepens further, they enter and remain into the third jhana, the third level of med meditative absorption. Delight and pleasure and the perception of pleasure and pain disappear. Equanimity and refined mindfulness increases and a peaceful mind prevails. It simply means that we're recognizing our deepening level of concentration and a deepening level of calm, equanimity. And again, that might not, that might be for three or four or five breaths. And we find we're caught up in a thought or a feeling again. What do we do? We take another breath. And as we continue to do that, we continue to recognize these ever-deepening levels of concentration. And within that framework is the recognition of impermanence within our own thoughts. And that is one of the most powerful recognition we can get out of jhana meditation. Even my thought constructs, even the way I think about myself, changes from moment by moment, from one breath to the next. It's a different thought, isn't it? And in jhana meditation, the distraction might be First, a, a, a discussion I had that was unpleasant with my boss or a coworker. And later on in the meditation, it might be what I'm having for dinner after I get done with this meditation. But it changes all the time, doesn't it? And all of that in meditation is just distraction. It's a lack of concentration. It's not right or it's not wrong. It's simply to recognize, come back to the sensation of breathing. Because in that moment, there's no me in it. It's just a breath. It's just me uniting my mind and my body so that I can have this experience on my cushion and then off my cushion. What experience? The experience of being present for my life. Because now I found the secret to everything, to be present for it, to not be distracted by yesterday or tomorrow or the last moment or the next moment. I'm just here. This is relating to that fourth Noble truth, the noble truth of the Eightfold Path, leading us to this place of calm and peace. As concentration deepens further, they enter and remain in the forest jhana. Notice the Buddha is just saying, do this. And as you continue to do this, concentration will deepen further. We don't have to have any special dispensation. We don't have to have any blessing put on us. We don't have to do anything special except do this. 
Mindful equanimity prevails. Greed and aversion disappear. This is the development of concentration that brings peace and calm here and now in this present moment, a mind united in its body. The training in heightened wisdom brings the ending of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. So the training in heightened wisdom is the end of grasping after, whether it's just in this moment or it prevails moment by moment. The training, I say it again, the training in heightened wisdom brings the ending of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. Through the ending of these defilements, the wise Dharma practitioner remains in the defilement-free, I love this line, the defilement-free release from ignorance. Once I release myself from my own ignorance, right? Remember, ignorance isn't a, a sentence imposed on us. It's simply a consequence of having a human life. We have it. But we can understand it and abandon it. And we can enter the defilement-free release from ignorance. The defilement-free release from ignorance. How do I get there? I let go of greed and aversion rooted in deluded thinking. How do I do that? Through the Eightfold Path. It all comes back to this. What's occurring in my mind in this moment? If it's a disturbance, I take a breath and recognize it as such. And continued practice will bring insight into that disturbance. Not to place blame, but simply to recognize it. The wise Dharma practitioner has established profound wisdom, fully mindful moment by moment as life occurs. Fully mindful moment by moment as life occurs. This is called heightened wisdom. These are the three trainings of my Dhamma. Heightened virtue, heightened concentration, and heightened wisdom. And, we, and that is through the Eightfold Path. So the Eightfold Path is characterized as a path of heightened virtue, heightened concentration, and heightened wisdom. The first two factors, right view and right intention, are the wisdom factors. The next three, right, right speech, right action, and right livelihood, are the virtuous factors. And the last three, right effort, right mindfulness, and right meditation, jhana meditation, are the concentration factors. The Buddha says the trainings of heightened virtue, concentration, and wisdom establish persistence because we recognize in our practice that we're deepening, that our concentration is deepening. It gives us the wherewithal to persist, to continue. Steadfastness. We, steadfastness is different than persistence. Persistence is, is uh, the keeping going. The steadfastness is the recognizing I'm maintaining the safefold path and nothing else. I'm singular. Is that a word? It applies here, maybe. <laughs> I'm singular in my attention, in my mindfulness. It's framed very clearly and, and in a very liberating way by this our Eightfold Path. Absorption in jhana, refined mindfulness, and wise restraint. I'm going to say this again. The trainings in heightened virtue, concentration, and wisdom establish persistence, steadfastness, absorption in jhana, deepening concentration, Refined mindfulness, the ability to hold in mind the Eightfold Path and nothing else is our Dharma practice, resulting in wise restraint in this moment, right? So when do we practice wise restraint? Maybe the, the question, the better question is when can we practice wise restraint? Anybody have an answer? When is it possible to practice wise restraint? Any minute. What? Any time. When you start to lose your mind. Wiser restraint can only exist if you have the concentration developed. 
Wise restraint can only be practiced in this moment. It can't be. I can't practice wise restraint for yesterday or the last moment when I found myself screaming at somebody because they got too close to me in a car or something. I would have picked one. And I certainly can't practice wise restraint as something that has yet to occur, although I might in my mind be so preoccupied and distracted by what's coming up, hoping that I could I could have practiced wise restraint in a situation where I never could before. Or I can recognize, as David just said, I just lost my mind. And now I got it back. I keep thinking of my friend, Brother Ken, who said who had nine nervous breakdowns. I don't know if you can still call it that. We used to have these great philosophical conversations about God, the meaning of life. And he always said, it's okay to lose your mind. You just get another one. One of the most profound things I ever heard. And he was so right. You just get another one. And we can do that in each and every moment, provided that we understand who and what we are, a six-property person, and the wherewithal to be gentle with myself in this moment. Because why shouldn't I? If I want you to be gentle with me, if I want you to treat me with gentleness and dignity and respect, don't I have to do that first for myself? And then if I can do that for myself, it really doesn't matter, does it? How the world comes at me or how I experience the world. Because now I understand. And you at least be able to recognize if somebody treats you with, with gentleness and respect. That, that's what they're doing. Yeah, so I can I, appreciate if it. If you're out of your mind, you don't even see that people are actually trying to, to treat you as a human being. Oh, yeah. Rather than them trying to restrain me or make me something that I don't want to be, because I'm holding on to the ideology of me. Mm -hmm. yeah. It puts into context what the virtue factors really are talking about, because <clears throat> without right view, you're, you may be polite, you may be kind, but if it's not within the context, it, it it's not a true noble search. That's right. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I think we all know people who are um, almost kind to a fault. <laughs> and when we get to know them, that doesn't mean everybody who's kind to a fault is going to be. But once you get to know these people, we find that they're just a, a churning quality of, of anger and confusion mm -hmm. um, that's that is manifesting in them as this need to be the perfect person so no one sees what's going on inside i was like that i have a couple of family members that were like that and it, it's a common thing that we fall into again rooted in self-loathing because we don't pe want people <clears throat> to know i didn't want people to know how angry i was i didn't understand why i was so angry but i certainly didn't want you to know and when it came out it wasn't pleasant to see but I also saw another, I saw it you know, in my marriage and other relationships when people would fly off the handle at me. So being such a wonderful person, I could be mad at me. <laughs> and it all becomes very confusing, doesn't it? Why are you treating me this way? I'm so wonderful. And, you know, when I'm kind of treating myself internally that way, too. And we all do it. And again, that's why I, it, it sounds rather harsh when I say it's rooted in self-loathing kind of a, a harsh word, but what it, it simply means that in this moment, I don't feel like I'm good enough for this moment. And so I, we, have, we have a phrase for it. We put on airs. We put on something that we're not to compensate for the fact that I don't think I'm good enough. Well, I am good enough. Simply by the fact that I'm having a human life is the, is the, all the, the only qualification I need to be present in this moment. Right? What other explanation do I need? I'm here. I'm having a human life. But let me understand what it means to have a human life. 
first. And then I can participate in this moment. Then I can practice wise restraint because I understand what I am. Then the Buddha says these three trainings should be practiced consistently and in all situations with unlimited concentration. So we know that the Buddha never teaches us anything that we can't humanly develop. <clears throat> so this is also a teaching in, in, in a profound direction that the Dhamma takes us. This should be practiced consistently and in all situations, right? In all situations, not just on a cushion, not just in class, not just when the sun is shining, but even in the middle of a hurricane, an emotional hurricane I'm talking about. That's when we practice the Dhamma. In all situations with unlimited concentration. These are the three trainings that, being, that brings pure understanding. Then the Buddha continues, developing these three, the, the, excuse me, developing these three trainings, you will be called a rightly self-awakened one who has completed the path. Rightly self-awakened. We do it ourselves and we do it rightly. Right speech, right action, right livelihood, right view, right intention, right effort, right mindfulness, right meditation, rightly self-awakened. By doing this simple thing, as the Buddha taught us to do, we get we do it to ourselves. Nobody does it to ourselves. Nobody can make us awaken. It's not granted to us. We can we can do all kinds of virtuous things. We can the most um, prevalent form of modern Buddhism is engaged Buddhism, but that's a type of Buddhism that is engaged in fixing social ills, but but mass the individual ill of that person. And I was engaged in that type of practice. And I'm not putting it down, but it's not what the Buddha taught. It's not what brought me understanding. And I can tell you that I am much more engaged in the world now in a very peaceful way than I ever was before. Because I'm no longer contributing my own ignorance, my own greed and aversion into this moment. Developing these three, these three trainings, you will be called a rightly self-awakened one who has completed the path. Excuse me, just to make one more point. The Buddha doesn't teach us anything that we can't do in this lifetime, in this moment, meaning complete the path. The Buddha continues, the cessation of ignorance of four noble truths and the craving for self-satisfaction extinguishes the fires of passion. The end of tonight's sutta. Thank you all for listening. Um, I'm going to go to Tom. Tom, how are you tonight? And I should say, anybody that doesn't feel like sharing, it's okay, but we'd love to hear what you have to say. And if you could come on screen, please, those that are hiding. Hello, Tom. Hi, uh, I'm good. I'm going to observe noble silence. Thank you. I'm glad you Thank joined us. Thank you for Thank you. You're welcome. I'm a teacher, Brian. How are you? I'm well, John. Thank you. Um, I think I'm going to take noble science as well tonight. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the teaching. Well, I leave you speechless. Huh? <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Who is right there? I can't see. Well, I know. Jane, how are you? I'm well, John. Um, thank you for the teaching. I'm just always struck by the fact that once you have the understanding that you're just a six property person, 
and you can let go of all the things that you you thought you were or you wanted other people to think you were it is just so freeing yeah. so yeah. thank you Jane. You. hello julia thank you for the teaching uh yeah i mean i'm really just a reference point to what's occurring but i find myself trying to protect myself and make myself feel safe but really you know that's stressful <laughs> and yeah. uh um i'm also kind of speechless too um yeah that's that's nothing more thanks thank you julia dama teacher kevin Hey, John. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. How are you? Well, thank you. Um, thank you for this teaching. You know, it's an auspicious teaching to hear, um, especially with this holiday time. And, and, you know, when we find ourselves getting to know the quality of our mind and, and understanding how to, how to live with a calm mind, that's an auspicious moment. That's an auspicious time. So I think, uh, this is a timely sutta for me, so that's all I'll say tonight. Thank you, Kevin. Hello, Jane. You got me already. Hey, oh, I did. That's right. It's all your mind. Don't worry. Short-term memory is gone. Oh, goodness. Okay, Jane, what do you have to say tonight? Oh, Jeff, how are you? Well, John, thank you for the teaching. I'll remain silent tonight. Thank you. Glad you joined us. Uh, if it, uh, Keel, do you mind if I put you on camera as we go around the room? It's okay if you're not. It's okay. Here's Keela. Good to have you back, Keela. Good to be back. What a wonderful teaching. Talk me, I've been away too long. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for joining us tonight. Brad, how are you? Good, uh, good to be here. There were a lot of nooks and crannies in there, and I'm glad I was here to hear them all because I needed to hear all that again. And um, get back to my breath and, uh, and uh, yeah, not, not taking anything personally was a, it still takes practice, but <clears throat> that was one of the biggest accomplishments in my Dharma practice. Yeah. And it's the essence of it. You, you've noticed a, uh, quite a, a, a progression of that, haven't you, of, of not taking things personal. Yeah. And knowing when to apply it. it we talked about that. Yeah, it took years. Yeah, but time well spent, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you. I think I have, I can't really tell. I think you're on camera, Laura. <laughs> Yeah, I'm um, really glad that I <clears throat> didn't have class today so I could be here. Um, but now I know I have to go home and apologize to my dad because, I mean, it really does take unlimited concentration at all times in all situations because I was, I was at home. I was trying to finish my homework and I'm just so exhausted. And then 
my dad comes up, he's trying to change the doorknob and I'm like yelling at him, like, why are you fooling around with the doorknob? And I, I was, I just got so angry for no reason. I could have just been, you know, I could have been kinder, but I guess, you know, it was inexcusable, but I just, I, I was out of my mind, like Ron was saying, and my dad was trying to do this nice thing. And maybe it was, you know, maybe the wrong time to do it. He could have done it at a different time when I wasn't trying to like focus on my homework. But again, that's just, you know, I didn't practice the wise restraint, but you know, I can go home and I can apologize yeah. and, and talk to him. And, uh, but it just shows me, you know, uh, that I really lost my mind. I got angry for no reason. And, yeah. um, yet this, you know, sitting in meditation tonight, though, coming back to my breath and just slowing things down um, really helps me understand that better. So thank you, John. Thank you, Laura, for saying that. You just you just recognize that you're a human being, right? That's all. Yeah, it's amazing, though, how you can be so angry and hurtful, you know, even just in little situations like that. It's like, what, it really what is, is wrong with my mind? But yeah. You know, go get another one. Like yeah, and 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 you're gonna you'll you won't it won't it won't lead to anything because you you recognize what you've done and you're gonna set it right immediately. Yeah, yeah, it, it is remarkable. Uh, thank you for that. The um, Keila, can I ask you a question? Sure. And if it, if you you could just say it, mm -hmm. it doesn't it doesn't relate however you want to answer it. Like, however you want to answer it is fine. I'm not trying to control your answer. But you've developed a way in um, one of the most stressful um, antagonistic situations that people could get involved with, mm -hmm. and you have a method of of minimizing the eye making in that. Mm -hmm. it, we would you care to talk about it again? You don't have to, but it's just. I'm, I, what you, I think it's remarkable anyway, but it, I'm prying, so. Yeah. No, it's, you know, every, say every couple is the same and every couple is different, uh, but they all come in hurt and scared and anxious. And what we do, we don't pit them against each other like they do in litigation. That system normally, they're enemies. What we do is create a climate where there are two people going through a time of struggle, uh, dismantling their lives together and creating two separate lives. So we, we just adjust mm -hmm. their focus away from he did this, she did this, into we need to do this to move forward, to create two separate lives with the most important concern being the well-being of our children. So it's, it's a focus shift away from the past. And, uh, you know, it, they're looking at the future yeah. in, in a you know, healthy way. Yeah, and it, it, it's, just, it's a strange thing that, um, that, we've, that we've let litigation be the resolution for two people getting divorced rather than that it took someone like you to develop a much more rational model because mm -hmm. why why would we decide okay we're getting divorced let's go in front of the judge and fight it out but don't you think that's true of all conflicts people see it as 
know, me against that other person yeah. as opposed to, you know, we have common goals of living a happy life and, and whatever. So, mm -hmm. um, as a, you know, it's not winner takes all. It's, you know, we, we both win, we find a solution that works best. Yeah. It's also a way of, you know, litigation is an application <clears> of <throat> rules. And what you're doing is the application of understanding. Yeah, yeah. it's a lot, a lot of education and understanding. Yeah. And just slowing it down um, mm -hmm. so that people listen to each other, understand each other, and find that, that common ground, especially when children are involved. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for <laughs> explaining that and getting into it. Dhamma teacher Rob. The more now we're getting into uh, the path and the form of the truth, uh, <clears throat> every time it smacks me that it is such a well-crafted path. Yeah. It just, everything supports everything else. Um, Yeah, and, and, and you know, you don't have to dive. You know, you don't have to analyze it, but when you do, it's it's astounding how how well it all fits together. And every every time you you run into, I run into a sutta where where um, where parts of the of the four noble truth and, and the eightfold path are are kind of expounded. Um, it's just I marvel at that how how yeah. this fits together, you know, and it's 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 really <clears throat> because it works and because it's based in reality, you know, this is not a theoretical framework. Yeah. It's it's something that works. You know, he lived through it and said, here here it is. You know, this is how I got there, and you know, all you know, I I they kind of formalized it. But um, yeah, it just works. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As you're talking, I keep I keep thinking, and, and there's nothing superfluous. It's just no. You know, there's no fluff. It's just no. this is it. No. Actually, I, he, he spends a lot of time, you know, throwing the fluff out, you know, or whatever yeah. fluff is, is being brought in. Like, can we try this? No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this. And the consistency through the no training. You know, there's I guess there's almost 400 suttas <clears throat> restored in there. Every one of them teaches exactly the same thing in different ways. Mm -hmm. that, that was a thing that kind of hit me like a ton of bricks when I first realized that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everything the Buddha taught was in this one narrow context and to not take anything personal. And, and then you see how much people have tried over the millennia to not do that. Yeah. You know, with such persistence. Even during the Buddhist time. Yeah. You know, they wanted to change what he was teaching. I mean, his own, I mean, Devadaha comes to mind, but there were many others that mm -hmm. wanted to take this. They saw the Buddhist popularity, and so the power went along with that popularity back then. And so they, they all claimed to be the Buddha. Yeah. And, and then you see somebody like, like Nagarjuna, who's like, 
an absolutely brilliant mind. Yeah. But he just misses the point completely. Yeah, because he's stuck in the ideology of what it should have been, which is something magical and mystical. And he had an understanding, I think, of what the Buddha was trying to teach, but he had to apply it in mystical ways, in magical ways, because that was what it had to be. And again, it, 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 Nagarjuna wasn't right or wrong. Uh, he influenced a lot of people in a certain, he still does, you know. Um, but that's not how the Buddha taught his dharma, meaning that the, the other practitioners during his time, he didn't denigrate them or make them wrong in any way. He, but it was always clear that I teach this, this is what we practice, and they're doing something else. And that's the only difference between us and everybody, every other Buddhist and, or human being in the world. Right? We're no, we are no different. We can't be any different. We're all six property people. And we're doing this in this moment. And it brings us this benefit. That's it. Right, Dhamma teacher David? Right. It just shows that it's not linear. It's integrated. And it just shows when you're not in the right view. Yeah. That's it. And for like Laura at that moment, she's now aware of the hindrance that was arising. And mm -hmm. because she's integrated the entire Eightfold Path, she's gentle with herself. And that next moment allows her to think how she's going to approach Pete the next time. Yeah. And even though someone who you just described, what's his name? The Guardian. He's simply in the wrong view. Sincere, but in the wrong because view. Because he's trying to make it something different. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be. So... You know, it's a limiting practice. It's a limiting dhamma. Yeah. But it's limiting for a purpose. Mm -hmm. Because once you try yeah. to do something different, it's going to cause distraction and suffering. So. Thank you. I think just, again, not to beat up on poor Nagarja. He's been done dead for 1,400 years, at least. Uh, but his whole... I think Ram's probably the only one here that's ever read Nagarjuna. I probably haven't. I, oh, you, well, don't, because yeah. it hurts. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, it's the same thing as, as reading the... Uh, uh, the the Abhidhamma. It's like that. Yeah. He, he concludes, or people conclude his whole teaching into this phrase, think not thinking. It's a denial of who we are as human beings, isn't it? But because that thinking relied on a magical and mystical application of where we go with this. It had to be annihilation. Think not thinking. And I used to try to figure that out for about eight minutes. I was in Nagarjuna following. And I thought, well, how cool is that to have to not be able to just get to that point where I don't have to think all the time. Mm -hmm. Because I thought the problem was my thinking what was hurting me. No, it was my relationship to my thoughts. Right. And it, so thinking it, not yeah. thinking is annihilation. It was the same for me, you know, when, when I went out, you know, on, on my search, uh, <clears throat> the driving factor was, you know, I'm thinking too much, you know, yeah. I'm, 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 that's all I do. 
And uh, so, you know, I, I got into the, the same thing, like, oh, how can I stop this thing? Yeah. And, you know, it took four years to, to <laughs> ditch that effort. But you did. But I did. Yeah. And that, it's, the whole, it's the same thing that we resolve either in that thinking, think not thinking, annihilation, or that we all resolve into the realm of emptiness or nothingness, which is so appealing. I mean, I, I was striving for that for quite a few years. Most, again, I'm not putting down modern practices. It's just different. But that's annihilation too, isn't it? That we aspire mm -hmm. to the realm of nothingness or emptiness as if somehow that's desirable or even peaceful because we don't understand what, it, what we're doing here. And it was the Buddha who first realized at a profound level what we're doing. We're being human beings. And it's the only thing we can be. It does not mean, the Buddha never said that nothing ever happens after death. He said it doesn't matter because we can't know. But what we can know is this moment. And we can have this human life if we'll get out of the way. If we'll get out of the way. And then peace prevails, right? Because then mm -hmm. there's no eye making. It's just me. Yeah, and that and annihilation, that's like, that's the exact, and then not thinking, what, that's the exact opposite of what David was talking about with being gentle with yourself. And it's amazing how I realized when David said that, even though I hear that all the time, be gentle with yourself, it's, it releases, it's amazing how being gentle with yourself, it's not complacency or laziness or, you no. know, it's, it's actually... It can it allows me to like release myself from my stubbornness. Like, yes, it's amazing how oh wow, now I'm being gentle with myself. Now I'm not stubborn. Now I can apologize because before I used to just like you know cling and yeah, it would be so hard for me to you know give my parents an apology or something. But it's amazing how yeah, the being gentle aspect really helps you be proactive. You know. No and way. you recognize a liberation in it now. You have the, yeah. you have this tool to free yourself from your own behavior mm -hmm. and, the, and the views you're holding of your behavior. And then we get to the point where we don't have to be concerned with our behavior anymore because we've integrated the Eightfold Path. Yeah. Our minds are calm and at peace, and I'm no longer in competition with anyone, including my own parents. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, it, it's, it, and it comes back to this whole thing. We're just being human beings. We, when, when. When I think I'm not, not, I'm not enough, which is what most human beings are born into that thinking in one way or another. I mean, our, our society is kind of built around find out what you're doing wrong, beat yourself up, and then you'll get better. It never works, does it? But when we can understand that this is what I am, and I can make, I can make of myself anything that I want to that relates to me as a human being and who I am in this moment, right? And, and I don't have to be anybody special, but that specialness that specialness might come out of what I do in the world. Again, I'm excuse me for pointing you out, Keela, but what Keela has done is it falls along those lines. But all of us, by being authentic human beings, are doing just what an awakened human being said we should do. And that's its reward, isn't it? The ability to have a, a, a life in this moment and to understand that I'm having it. I don't need it to be any different. When someone's in my face, I can understand where they're coming from. And when a baby's in my face, I can understand where that baby came from. And when a sunset, a beautiful sunset is there, I can understand it, but I don't have mm -hmm. to cling to it. Tomorrow's sunset that wasn't as nice as yesterday's is fine. It's just another sunset. It's a moment for me to be alive. 
And then when I start looking out in the world as a Buddha did in the Loka Sutta, and he says, I looked out on the world and the world was a flame. A flame with what? A flame with the fires of passion. I can understand why people are always fighting, why we get into these tribal antagonisms, why we need courts to settle disputes, you know, and why we have some of the things that, that still go on in this world and have always gone on. Remember, the Buddha made that statement 2,600 years ago, but he could have made the same exact statement today, couldn't he? And he would have been just as right. That, that's not something that should be distressing to us. We understand that as the first noble truth. As a consequence of having a human life, there will be dukkha. There will be stress. But the Eightfold Path, the fourth noble truth, what we learned tonight tells us, don't take any of it personal because none of it is. I think that's enough for tonight, right? <laughs> All right, we'll finish as we always do um, with Meta. Fix your camera. Oh yeah, fix the camera. Thank you. Here's Johnny. <laughs> no more, no, no questions remaining? Okay. So these are the Buddha's words on Metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class tonight. Thank you, John. Peace. Thank you, John. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.